0: The Winter Blues have you down, and Honorable Profession is here to warm you up. Today we talk to Hawaii Representative Patrick Bronco. Representative Bronco had a long career as a U.S. diplomat, serving in places as diverse as Pakistan and Colombia before returning to his hometown to run for office. In the state legislature, he's an advocate for environmental protection, economic reform, and bridging the divide between Native Hawaiians and residents. He uses the skills that he learned as a diplomat in order to get better policy for his community. He also shares with us how to make the most out of your trip to Hawaii and to engage with the wonderful culture and natural resources of the islands. Enjoy. Representative Patrick Bronco, welcome to an honorable profession. It is wonderful to be talking to you today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you folks.
0: Let's start just by making the world jealous. Uh, why don't you describe uh, the weather outside your window right now?
1: The weather is absolutely perfect. It's about 75 degrees, light tropical breeze, 15 miles per hour. And there are beautiful birds <laughs> flying outside of my window. It's just a beautiful it's a beautiful view. Uh, I have no complaints living in Hawaii.
0: <laughs> tough life, tough life. And uh, yeah, I imagine this... Parts of the country will still be uh, freezing as this airs. So um, I'll let them just eat their hearts out. I think that's actually a good starting point because Hawaii is always an attractive place for people to visit and, you know, even relocate. And I think you became even more attractive as COVID restrictions hit. And that obviously must've had a huge impact on the, the island from a tourism perspective, from a housing perspective. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like? Well, for COVID, you know, we had a lot of
1: those who wanted to come here and work digitally. So that was a big influx into our, into our economy. But one of the big things that was also at play there was, you know, during COVID, we didn't have a lot of rental surplus and then we had a lot of those folks you know who are coming from from the bay area especially from silicon valley who came with very large stipends or very large checks and it was uh quickly soaking up our rental market here and so there was actually some friction in that during that COVID time about those coming to working in hawaii but also you know, our locals who are looking for housing, especially during COVID, the rental market just completely shrank. And so that was one of the unique challenges we, we, we had because we always want to attract high wage earners, anyone that can help our economy. But this uh, COVID actually put Hawaii in a very unique situation.
0: And what do you see as the lasting impacts, both in terms of your economy, but also in terms of policies that you may be looking at from this experience?
1: Yeah, so when it came to policy, if if our view, if the viewers don't know, but tourism is a major leg of our economy. So if you if you think of the Hawaiian economy, we we talk about it as a two-legged stool. We have military tourism, and then we don't really know what the third leg is, or the third leg is just it changes from time to time. And so tourism is a big part of our our economy. And during COVID with the shutdown, with our beaches being um, mostly free of tourists, our local communities being free of tourists, many of our local residents were calling for rebalancing of tourism. Because right before COVID, we had hit the largest numbers of visitors, almost 12 million. And Hawaii, think of Hawaii, you know, we're eight islands and 1.4 million people live across all these islands, but we have 12 million visitors a year. So that's about you know a million people compared to our population of 1.4 that are guests in our islands each year so that has a big impact and so some policies that were being proposed was you know stopping tourist buses from operating on sundays or you know how do we change the tourism market instead of you know putting as many people on planes and getting such large numbers here how do we change our tourism market so it looks more sustainable, that our resources are not overused, our beaches can replenish itself. Because the amazing thing during COVID was, you know, when the state shut down, we were seeing a massive amount of wildlife right coming back to our beaches where they naturally used to be. We were wow. seeing seals, we were seeing, you know, very large sharks, even eight foot tiger sharks, all the way in where normally people swim every day. And so that was very unique for us to see, and it made our residents start thinking about the shifting or rebalancing of tourism.
0: That makes a lot of sense. As the ARPA funds have come down and you're thinking about the needs of your community that, that may have been exposed during COVID, how, how is the, your state um, looking at the ARPA funds and what are your priorities?
1: Yeah, so our state's looking at the ARPA funds by one thing was, you know, Hawaii is an isolated economy. We import 86% of our, our goods here. And so during COVID and with the supply chain disruption, there was a lot of concerns about how could Hawaii survive? So Hawaii needs to become more sustainable. And so we were looking at our ARPA funds to do more of that, helping to promote agriculture, looking at developing kind of a a uh, green youth core, also looking at helping manufacturing. We were really looking at the niches of of Hawaii, especially Hawaii's agriculture market, where we could provide more jobs and also more food into our system.
0: And are you seeing some success in terms of some of those programs and being able to sustain them into the future? We are seeing some success in the niche markets, right? High agricultural
1: products, that are are great for hawaii is like vanilla cacao macadamia nuts also aquaculture is huge as well and hawaii can import those for high value right that's something unique to hawaii but in the terms of mass agricultural production like we had in hawaii in the early 20th century pineapple sugarcane that those types of industries are just dead and it's not going to happen and so that's one of the big things that I've been emphasizing is when people say, hey, we need to bring back agriculture. I was like, yes, but we need to be smart and look at what is competitive in the market locally, as well as being able to export it. Because these large you know, thousand acre sugarcane fields or thousand acre pineapple fields, is just unrealistic. And we don't have, the other thing that we have to keep in mind is Hawaii is so expensive to live in. We have very high labor costs. And so it's just going to be not productive, right? If we grow pineapples and you can only sell it for $3, but the actual person picking the pineapples or working, working in the fields, you need to pay at least 25 to $30, right? It just doesn't make it, make it feasible. So that's why we have to look at those kind of high net, high value agricultural products.
0: Where do you see your state in 10 or 20 or 30 years as we see the impacts of climate change and remote work all these big forces that are going to be uh, pushing on all of us but i imagine pushing on places like hawaii that are so uh, attractive to so many people
1: yeah we're we're gonna have a rough time with climate change you know i represent a district i say every every representative is always going to say that they represent the best district but i can truly say that you know I represent the best district, if not one of the most unique districts. So our district actually has on one side, on the north side of our district, Hawaii's largest wetlands. On the right side, we have a pristine coral bay. And then on the south side, we have America's number one white sand beach. And so it's a very unique district. And then because of the unique uh, topography of our district, we are already seeing sea level rise. Our beaches are eroding. We're seeing um coral bleaching also in, in our bay. And these are these are really serious issues. The other thing statewide is it was just convenient for us to build infrastructure, highways, electricity plants all along the coast, right? Poise topography goes from the beach and it rises very quickly into the mountains. So it just made it made sense at the time. But Now, with climate change and sea level rise, we have to seriously look at moving our infrastructure back, which is going to cost billions of dollars over the next few years. And then also, we have many residents who live on the seas and many of them are putting in seawalls and seawalls actually contribute to sea erosion, uh, beach erosion. And so we have to figure out we have some big challenges in here in hawaii and i'm on the water and land committee i'm the vice chair of that committee and these are issues that we're looking at policies we're looking at changing to make sure that hawaii can maintain you know our beautiful landscape
0: absolutely and i want to dive into that i also have to point out just because this is what elected officials do so i am lucky enough to represent the district where the hawaiian princess first surfed on the mainland of the united states Uh, in 1885 on big uh, redwood boards uh, right right here at the river mouth and so uh, I always feel a deep connection uh, to Hawaii as we uh, as we share that surfing the commitment to surfing and our natural environment
1: yeah I recently saw one of those surfboards that that was used up there and that thing was like 18 feet and it weighed like almost 300 pounds yeah like I just (laughs) cannot believe like that it's so huge but also the sheer strength that our our princes had to be able to carry that and navigate that in the ocean
0: i know i know yeah when you yeah we see, we have we look at the boards and yeah they're insane it's like a boat almost and the fact that they uh yeah carried that out and then paddled it out and then were able to to ride the waves it's it's just a, just incredible but let's talk about that you're on the key committee that, that looks at environmental protection. So what are your, what have been your priorities this year as you're trying to, to sort of begin the conversation around all these adaptations and impacts to the environment that we're seeing?
1: Yeah. So one of, one of the big things that I have a passion for is our endangered species and maybe the listeners don't know, but Hawaii is also coined as, you know, everyone thinks beautiful paradise, but we're the endangered capital of the world. We actually have 100 times more endangered species than the next state, actually. So if you look at the chart, Hawaii is off the chart in terms of that. We have highly endangered rare birds where some of our bird species only have about 30 breeding pairs or even just 200 left in the wild. And so because I'm on the Water and Land Committee and you know there's many issues that are affecting our native birds as well as another other native species is our native species suffer from attack from avian malaria so that's transmitted from mosquitoes and so with climate change now with it getting warmer our bird species in particular used to stay at the highest levels of our mountain peaks but with climate change it's getting warmer so mosquitoes are now able to go into this territory and it's just Collapsing our native bird species, so that's something I've been working on. Um, I introduced a bill last session that was looking at um, a naturally occurring bacteria in mosquito bellies called Wolbachia that can be introduced into Hawaii that can help make mosquitoes sterile. It isn't the most sexiest thing to work on, but it will <laughs> help our, it will help Hawaii greatly at our native species if we can we can get this rolling.
0: I was not I was not anticipating our conversation heading this way but but it's interesting cuz like you know this is this is something that you're only exposed to when you're in elected life and you're trying to solve these complex issues. Can you talk about how how do you communicate to your constituents you know trying to address mosquitoes and their impact that are it's enormous but in that it seems so <laughs> seems so strange in these crazy times yeah exactly right and
1: as you mentioned like you know i didn't run for office on the campaign like i'm gonna kill mosquitoes right that's not the issue we run on but well, how we explain it to our community is very in simple terms we use graphics and like basically like coloring books to explain what this does why this is important and so that's what we do we just digest it for for our district as much as possible the, the unique thing about our district though, is we're very involved and we're very environmental friendly because we're completely surrounded by water on every side. And so I would say that our district is acutely attuned to, to these types of issues, which makes my job a little bit easier. That's one issue that, that we're dealing with in water in Waterland. We also deal with seawalls, right? And recently there was um, all permits for new seawalls have to come through our committee. And President Obama is building a a house right on the beach, and he needed to repair the seawall of this very old seawall that came through. And so that was a very difficult one for us, because generally, the other members in the legislature all agree that seawalls help exacerbate beach erosion. And so that was a very tricky one that we had to navigate.
0: And so tell me, how did you navigate it when you're trying to (laughs) <laughs> trying to balance uh, competing interests and also uh, a former president and uh, native son of Hawaii. So what we did was we went out to the community, right? We did some education. Also, that
1: area is is unique in that right in front of the property that President Obama was building on is actually an ancient Hawaiian turtle pond. Ancient Hawaiians uh, would eat green sea turtles. That was a delicacy, especially for our chiefs. And this is the only known native Hawaiian fish pond that's over 800 years old that where sea turtles was raised in kind of a a captive setting and so that was also important there and so it kind of helped in the sense that that being there kind of made the sense why there needed to be a seawall but we definitely needed to have that conversation with the community and that was that was very important to us is to always have the community feedback and then in general office yeah I think you have the the same perspective, Ryan, is if the community is feels that the, you've been able to to speak with them, share why this has to happen, and also have heard them, they'll usually fall behind you. Yeah,
0: I, that is definitely true. The more the more conversations, even though at times it's difficult and painful, better you'll be uh, in the long run. I want to shift a little bit because you just have such a fascinating life story. And you've really dedicated your life to public service, but public service in, in a lot of different forms. Can you talk about your path prior to getting elected to office and, and where that commitment to public service uh, came from in your life?
1: Sure. So prior to running for office, I was a U.S. diplomat and I had served in Colombia twice, Pakistan, Venezuela, and the Secretary of State's Operations Center. So it was a great honor to represent our country abroad and be a public servant. But really the motivation to become a public servant, I think, started with my my education. I was very fortunate. There's a a unique high school called Kamehameha Schools, um, King Kamehameha was the first king of Hawaii that united all the islands and his last heir to the throne, Princess Bernice Poahi Bishop, accumulated this vast amount of wealth. Uh, She owned 10% of all the lands in Hawaii. She had no children and when the crown was offered to her, she actually said that she didn't want to, to sit on a throne, she wanted to be amongst her people. After she passed away though, she left all her lands to build the school during her time, just to kind of put it in perspective. So when Captain Cook came in the late 18th century, the Hawaiian population was around 400,000. And so a hundred years later, kind of around Princess Poahi's time when she was writing her will, the population was down to to 40,000. So only 10 you know 90 percent of the Hawaiian population had perished through foreign diseases. And she really felt that to give, our Native people a chance, she believed in education was the best way. So she left all her money to build this school, the Kamehameha Schools, that is solely for the education of Native Hawaiian children. And I was very fortunate to receive a spot there. And when we were there, we were always taught that, you know, they are not able to educate all Native Hawaiians. The school just doesn't have that capacity. The school has a very large endowment. The endowment is around $14 billion. It's behind Stanford and Harvard's endowment, uh, but it's very large. It's the world's largest private school, but they really ingrained in us that you are here not studying for yourself. You are studying for our people and to be leaders of our people. And that's really where I think my background was really ingrained to me about being a public servant. And so from there, it really triggered this desire to give back to to the people of Hawaii,
0: can you talk about your work overseas and what it entailed, and did it provide you with any skills that that you're able to apply now as your uh, as a representative in Hawaii?
1: Sure, I actually think we need more diplomats in elected office. Uh, it just it just helps. It's able we're able to bridge across, especially in this polarized political environment. I think being a diplomat brings a lot of. <laughs> brings a lot of skill set in the terms of being able to engage with people, to have those difficult situations, and also having an open mind, right? And I think the one thing that being a diplomat taught me, especially when I was abroad in, in Pakistan or in Afghanistan for a little bit or Venezuela, was we have more in common with others than that separates us. So if you focus on finding that common ground first, and then it's much easier to approach those those hard topics. I, I tell you my first uh, tour, tour in Colombia, that was completely different. I had never served in in the region. I wasn't familiar. I had just learned Spanish. Uh, my education was actually in international relations, but I was more of a Korea hand, East Asia hand. And so when you're a US diplomat, they train you to be able to parachute into any embassy worldwide and be able to fulfill the job as a generalist. And so in Colombia, I was fresh uh, out of Spanish class. I I could barely order food. (laughs) But I think what helped me when I was there was my training One as a diplomat to find common ground, especially during the time when the peace deal was being negotiated in Colombia with the FARC. That was really important. Colombia was going through 50 years of internal conflict. And we had to be very understanding of that, right? When it comes to u.s foreign policy we think of how it affects the united states whether it's drug trafficking sex trafficking and whatnot but we also had to remember that colombians went through an extreme amount of violence in the last 50 years before the uh, the finalization of the peace process and so having that understanding and knowing and being willing to listen first i think was very very beneficial in my diplomatic career
0: and what made you decide to come back home and get involved in, in politics? I always knew I
1: wanted to come back home, and I always knew that I wanted to run for office, especially for me being part Native Hawaiian. Our state legislature has uh, 25 senators, 51 state representatives, and you know, less than 10% of that, only like about eight of us are actually of Native Hawaiian descent. And so I think for me, I've been very fortunate that I had the education, I had skills and a lot of amazing opportunities. But the goal was always to come home and serve our people and, I, and especially fill that space and give a, a voice to, to our Native people in the state legislature. And that's also a unique challenge for me because I represent the town that I grew up in. My family's lived in this town since 1953, but the majority of the population is not Native Hawaiian. Right? And our viewpoints in the district sometimes are, are contrary to what the Native Hawaiian community wants. And so that's a unique line that I have to carry every day when, when I'm making legislation, when I'm thinking about decision-making, right? And so that just puts me in a very unique position. And you know I think I'm doing a good job. I think I'm moving the marker on Native Hawaiian education, uh, helping our people reclaim our language, Our language was publicly banned in the early 20th century. And so I have a lot of measures that are helping Native Hawaiians, helping language. But in general, language benefits everyone. Whether it's Native Hawaiian that you're learning or you're learning Japanese or Chinese, this is a common ground that I think I found. And then I have an expertise in. And so that's one of the measures that I've been pushing. Several measures is to help promote the learning of of Olala Hawai'i in our public schools.
0: Can you talk about like an example of where that 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 tension between the native hawaiians and maybe the majority of your residents comes and then how do you how do you think about those competing values so so one example
1: would be our wetlands so our wetlands were actually cultivated by native hawaiians into these very productive what we call taro fields similar to like rice paddies and also um fish ponds through a series of irrigation and this this area was um, the most productive, it was the breadbasket of O'ahu um, feeding, um, you know, the ancient Hawaiian population. And so many Hawaiian groups want to see a restoration of these wetlands into productive fish ponds so we can do our traditional agricultural practices. But many residents want it to be, as I already described, our our town is beautiful. President Obama uh, vacations are regular, people seek out our district and want to live there. And so there's always this conflict with tourism or overdevelopment or fear that our town will become kind of a Waikiki, a tourist hub. Um, And we want to keep that small town charm. And so right now there is a plan to help, not redevelop, but help clean these fish ponds, these wetlands out of invasives and make it productive again for the community. But some in our community just want it to not be touched because they see it as another potential tourism site that would attract more people to our town. Even though some native Hawaiians in our district want to use, redevelop and use this as an area where we could do our traditional cultural practices. And so for me, it's just very important for me to listen to engage with both sides, to understand, come from a sense of humility, right? If I can be able to listen and just, that's the thing for me is I listen and I try to find the strains of common ground between the the conflicting viewpoints, And then that's where I start. So for me, it's always very important to start with a listening tour.
0: That makes so much sense. And do you find that the non-native uh, residents, there's such a history and pain, are they open to to understanding that in these conversations? And and how do you how do you make sure you get those the native Hawaiian voices and concerns which maybe you know are are present in, in one particular policy, but maybe rooted in a long-term context uh, across to people who are who are relative newcomers to the to the community?
1: Yeah. So as, as I mentioned earlier it's it's just about listening finding the common ground finding those points and being able to distill them to okay. These, these when I speak with native Hawaiians i'm like Okay, this is, this is what you want 1234 we it, it's hard to get there first but that's what I try to distill down and then I go back and forth and I talk and the other thing too, which is also our town is people love our town, and people have lived there for generations, like my family, I'm fourth generation living in this town, and that's something we're very proud of. And so many of the residents, even though they may not be Native Hawaiian, their families have lived in this town for 80 to 100 years, right? And so that's also a unique perspective. And many of our relatives, uh, you know, my father is not Native Hawaiian, but he's His family has lived here for over a hundred years and they also have a voice and they also have a voice of concern. And so that's, that's something I try to recognize. And when I, when I speak with native Hawaiians, I try to, you know, one, I'm from the community. I'm part native Hawaiian, but also share with them too, you know, think about what would you say in this context to someone, to your family member who isn't native Hawaiian, you know, you wouldn't want to exclude them. Right. And thats it's very counter our culture as Hawaiians to always be, we always are in, inclusive. And so I try to, you know, frame it in different ways to make us think about it. And then on the other side, too, try to educate because a lot of people, unfortunately, just they don't know the sad history of Hawaii, right? And know that there's generational trauma, even though the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy was over 100 years ago. And, you know, President Clinton signed an apology resolution to us. There's still many unresolved issues for Native Hawaiians in our, in our homeland. And we only increasingly become a minority. And the latest census actually showed that the majority of Native Hawaiians live on the continent compared to living in Hawaii. So they're being displaced in our, in our, in our homeland. And so when I can share these types of facts and these types of general uh, generational trauma that's still existing, the non-Native population, they, they can understand and then we can usually move to consensus
0: that makes that makes a lot of sense. It's a hard conversation to have, but as you mentioned, it's just so important to uh, to 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 make sure that you're engaging and spending the time listening. As you have these conversations, my normal question is: If I have 24 hours to spend in, in your community, how would I spend it? I, I, problem is, I want like two weeks. But if if I was visiting Kailua for 24 hours and wanted to to really understand the depth of your community and and the the you know and have a, have an experience, wh- how how would you recommend I spend it?
1: Well, I would tell you to start it off with a morning hike.
0: We have these
1: beautiful vistas, so I would say, number one, a morning hike, but I also would pair you with someone from Kailua, an uncle or an auntie, because we have some great residents who have lived in Kailua for 80 years, before Kailua even got developed, so I would I would pair you with someone like that um, to do your hike, and then, of course, we would go eat. Kailua has some of the best restaurants and a variety of food, if you want Chinese, Japanese, Indian, whatever you want, it's all in Kailua and it's all within basically a a three to four mile radius. And that's the beautiful thing about Kailua and Hawaii, right? We're very diverse and we're very accepting. So we would start, we would have breakfast, and then we would just spend the day at the beach. I think that would be the thing, whether or not we go kayaking or go around into our, our bay. I think you being on the beach, seeing the families who come here seeing them who treasure our local resources and seeing the diversity on the beach and the the beautiful thing is we walk the beach in the morning and people just come up to you and talk story with you and just want to know your story and so i think that would be the best way for you to to learn about of kailua is just being able to spend a day at the beach and being able to talk to the residents and the various people who walk by
0: I love it. I love it. I won't try to carry my 300-pound uh, Redwood surfboard uh, on, uh, <laughs> on the plane with me, but, um, but I'm definitely sold and ready, ready to come for sure. Thank you for joining us today. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Same here. It's a real
1: pleasure and thank you for having me on the show.
0: All right. I hope to see you soon at a New Deal event.
1: Sounds good. You take care. All right. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.